This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. It's been a while. It has been. I'm glad to be back in the in the hot seat, and I'm and I my understanding is I get to listen to a sermon this time. Yeah, you know, you were in here last, and we were working our way through the small catechism, and I think the last episode that you did, I didn't even finish. I didn't even. It's still in. Can we time out? Am I am I on? Are you hearing me? I need a little bit more bass. Can you just turn <laughs> the levels? Last time that you were with us on the podcast, we were working our way through the small catechism. And I don't know, did we get like uh, four or five into it? Uh, do you I recall? I think we were almost done with the commandments. We may have on- you may have only edited up to four or five. Gotcha. Well, I still have one somewhere around here in the hard drive uh, that I, I need to finish. But I thought instead of going to the catechism, what we would do is attack some low-hanging fruit today. It's my favorite kind of fruit. It really is. And uh, it's like a shooting fish in a barrel, as Pastor Brust would say. But this is from a, it's going to be categorized as a, as a non-denom church, but it leans Pentecostal. I can already tell you it's going to be an amazing sermon. <laughs> you know nothing about this sermon. You know nothing about who it is or what this uh, guy preaches. But he's going to talk about how your words actually affect your reality. And having listened to it a couple times, it sounds like witchcraft. But you be the judge. Okay. However, just know that before we begin, we've got to go through this litany of commercials that the pastor has to go through. And this is pretty standard in the evangelical church. Different from the Lutheran church where you get right into the text because you realize time is valuable and you're not called there to do anything but preach the word. In the evangelical church, man, you got plenty of time to do all kinds of stuff. Make commercials, do stand-up. Shenanigans. Shenanigans, exactly. That's what we call that. that well, that's what it is. Good morning, Life Church. Good morning. Good morning over here. Good morning in the middle. Good morning over here. It's so wonderful to see everybody here today. I love it. Thanks for coming to church today. If you're a guest, thank you for coming. We want to say welcome home. We're so glad you're here. How folksy. And very comforting in a certain way. I mean, it is, it's very different than how we start a sermon is all. How do we start a sermon, Pastor Oakry? There's a, there's a little bit of range in there. Me personally, I announce the text and then I pray. But then I do, but then I say grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father. Which is interesting. We, we frame it in a very kind of formal way, which is very different than what an evangelical... And, and it's just part of the liturgy, right? And, and that's, what we, that's the difference we have here, is that they would not consider themselves liturgical. There is some order to what they do, to be sure. But welcome home is very different than grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And, and notice the difference... Welcome home is saying, get comfortable. I'm about to warm your soul. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is saying, God's going to come. And his grace and his mercy and peace are coming to you. But it's maybe not going to warm your soul. <laughs> There's an authoritative proclamation in those words that welcome home doesn't embody. And I really does, do think it frames it as saying, look, you're on the receiving end of God's word. Whereas welcome home kind of says, 
Yeah, you can run this rodeo a little bit. So what you're talking about here, uh, liturgically speaking, is the votum. And this votum, wouldn't you say as well, if anybody's not familiar with the Lutheran liturgy, what has just taken place before, typically, before the preacher pronounces the votum, there's been the reading of the scriptures. You know, maybe the creed is confessed after that, maybe there's a hymn, but at some point here, pretty quickly, there's going to be this votum. So my question to you is, isn't that votum connecting or linking to the scriptures that were just read to simply say, that was the word read, now this is the word preached? And just like in your church, you have the scriptures read from the lectern and the scriptures preached from the pulpit. And in a way, doesn't the votum serve as a, a link to keeping those two things together? I certainly think that it, it is showing that this is a part of the service of the word and that the word finally and fully is that gospel proclamation which we stand for. Uh, I think some people think that the sermon is the culmination of the service of the word because, well, we all want to hear what pastor has to say, but that's not actually true. The sermon is the the follow-up to the full proclamation of Scripture, which we read, and how significant that is. And those words, grace, mercy, and peace, those are echoing the words of Paul in many of his letters, sometimes not exactly that way. Um, and, and they don't have to be said exactly that way. But what we are driving at is this connection that Paul's driving at, too, that he is carrying on a proclamation of Scripture born out of Scripture. And that's exactly what we're doing from the pulpit. And so when we give that grace, mercy, and peace, we are saying what you have just heard uh, will be elaborated on. It's not a new word. It is a word contiguous and flowing out of that word. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, with this guy, we still have a lot more meaningless words. Which is interesting. I mean, it, it just goes to show, right? We have places for announce. We have places for greeting and announcements, but we separate that out from the sermon. Whereas he's just saying, "Look, now's my." T-. I mean, it's almost like he's saying, "Now's just my time to talk." Right, and talk he will. Hey, let's just do this, church. If you're really glad that people come to visit with us, will you show them a little love with a clap? Come on, we do. We're so glad you're here. So glad you're here. We're a very welcoming family, and so welcome to the family. Welcome home. So glad you're here. I do want to remind you that if you want to find out more about our church, you can go to our Next Step class. It begins every first Sunday of the month, and so you can jump in, sign up online, and you can learn about our ministries. You can learn about how to get involved, and so so many great things through our Next Step class. Speaking of getting involved, we had a, a dramatic life group video. Um, so we'd love for you to jump in a life group today. Uh, after you leave this message today full of inspiration, you can go, that's a joke, people, go with me. Um, but you can, no, no, it's for real. We're going to be inspired today. Come on. What am I saying? Speak. I got to speak positively. You wait, you hear my message, you'll find out how funny that is. Um, hey, outside, there are places for you to sign up to be in a life group. Uh, if you're not ready to sign up, go along and find out what's available. Maybe you will see those things and you can sign up online after that. Uh, what else do I want to announce before we get started? Oh, uh, Pastor Gina mentioned our 
uh, Wednesday night prayer meetings we've had. Um, so we're in 21 days of, of prayer, and we've been reading a devotion together, uh, and three times we've been meeting at our church offices, our complex, and having prayer nights there on Wednesday nights. And I'll just say it like this. Last Wednesday night was probably my favorite prayer night that I've ever been a part of. And I've been in a lot of prayer meetings, like a lot. And Wednesday night was amazing. So I want to invite you to come this Wednesday. We'd love for you to come out, 7 p.m. Uh, we do want to remind you that we do not have child care. We do not have space in our little complex for kids to be running around. So be aware of that when you come. Uh, if you can get a babysitter, it'd be great. Uh, but we want you to come. It's been so amazing. So that's this Wednesday, 7 p.m. Awesome, awesome. Uh, let's see, is there anything else I need to talk about before we get started? I think I've covered it all. Let's just go to a message. You want a message today? Did you come to hear the word? All right, awesome, awesome. Uh, my sermon title today is The Weight of Your Words. Now that is a WWE votum. Do you want a message today? <laughs> you want to get into God's word? That is, that is good stuff. I mean, again, it's, it's very much a casual approach to scripture. And I get it. Like we want to be comfortable with God. I, I, I want people to feel like you know, God loves them and, and all of those things, but it should never be entirely comfortable. <laughs> and, and just this casual approach to him is, I can understand why somebody would like it, but to me, it, it just strikes me as setting the completely wrong tone for bringing to bear what God has to say. Now, Part of that's because we speak in these categories of law and gospel, and the law is meant to make you feel uncomfortable. And starting off with kind of like, hey, let's get comfortable, and I'm going to tell you what a sinner you are, that doesn't really work. But my imagination tells me that, well, we're probably going to get all law here, but he's going to, but he's going to probably present the law in a way that's that's sugar-coated well you know it's so fascinating you you do the same thing that pastor Bruss does you just listen to just a few moments and you're able to forecast exactly what you're you're going to hear you're right I mean he is going to take he doesn't think in categories of law and gospel now to be fair he wasn't trained this way but because of that everything's gonna be law I mean, what is that saying? Like when you're when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. Yeah. When you're a preacher, everything is law. I mean, this is what he's going to do. That's why you need to say like nice things about yourself. Uh, here's the deal: our words have creative power in them. Whenever you speak something good or bad, we give life to whatever we're saying. That's why your words have weight. I, we probably ought to pray to jump into that. Father, I ask that you would help me to use your words to inspire us to live for you, God. Lord, we pray that as I speak today that we would all lean in, open hearts to hear what you have for us, God. Help us to be not only hearers of your word, but doers of your word. Lord, I thank you that there is a fresh kind of move of your spirit in our church. I thank you for our worship team that helps take us into the presence of God. I thank you for the prayer nights we've had. Uh, Lord, they've been so powerful. God, use those to build something in our house beyond what we can do in our own efforts. And so, Lord, we love you. You're amazing, God. In Jesus' name, can I get a great amen? amen. Now, Pastor Oakley, whenever Pastor Bruss and I listen to a guy like this pray, 
Pastor Bruss usually has a lot of things to say about a prayer like this. What, what, what are your thoughts? It was very much a God, you're my life coach prayer. Mm-hmm. It was very much a, I need your help to improve myself. And so it's like, help me to lean in. Help me to not just hear, but to do that kind of stuff. That really is missing the point that Christ did it all for us on the cross. And what a kind of devoid thing to leave people with. But it happens so often that we do get this desire for life coach Jesus. And you can understand the appeal. Just go to uh, Barnes and Noble or get on Amazon and and just go look at self-help books. We have this idea that things aren't quite right, but all I need is a book. And if you go into my office right now, my desk is a disaster. It, you know, it would probably make you want to cry <laughs> to, to see. But all I need is just a book on organizing my life. I've got one. Right. And you know what's going to happen. It's just going to get stuck <laughs> in the disaster, the, the, the whirlwind, the tsunami of, 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 of papers on my desk. If there's anybody who needs a life coach. I could, I could use one. It's, it's you. true. It's true. Um, but you don't look at Jesus as your life coach. Right. I mean, there is. does Christ set an example for us? Absolutely. But he's not even pointing to Christ as an example at this point. He's just saying, God, come in mysterious ways and help me be a better me. Instead of, God, come and kill me and make me alive in your law and gospel. The, the contrasts are so different. And maybe that comes from a place of recognizing that the need is so much more. We don't need a life coach. We need a savior. Amen. And how important that is. I also note that in the prayer, he was thanking the worship team for bringing the congregation into the presence of God. And I said, aha, (laughs) because he's being very forthright about what he thinks is a sacrament. We talk about coming into the presence of God in worship, absolutely. But we do it through word, we do it through baptism, we do it through the Lord's Supper. That's how we come into the presence of God. And we do that because scripture says there's promises attached to it. Does scripture affirm and uphold music? Yes. Does it say that that music brings you into the presence of God? No. (laughs) And so what he's saying is, our music team has created an environment where we feel close to God. And when we talk about feelings, as you know well, we're talking about the enthusiast in us all. Right. And we love that. We love to feel close to God, whether he's close to us or not. And there's nothing wrong with feeling close to God. The challenge for us and what we have to be grounded in our faith is the absolute understanding from Scripture that even when I don't feel close to God, he's close to me. Because that's going to see you through not just your average middle-class suburban day. It's going to see you through the real rough stuff in life. The things when you're just laid low, when you actually feel like you're in the valley of the shadow of death. And to know that God is with you even when he doesn't feel close. This is one of the many reasons why I love the Lutheran distinctives. It's a very tactile view and understanding of the Christian life. I mean, it touches you. Water, for instance, it touches you. Bread and wine, it touches you. Uh, The pastor making the sign of the cross on children who come to receive blessings at the rail. 
I know that you at your church and we here at St. John's make a big deal about baptismal certificates in that this is a document to be framed. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, you've got what, your grandfather's baptismal certificate in your office? I do. You know, and so this idea that I can look back and I, I can see this, it's tactile, it's I can smell uh, the incense. And as a result of that, I don't have to rely on my wishy-washy feelings. Yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, our feelings are engaged through those tactile experiences, just like you know, walking into a house and smelling cookies brings, emo- brings memories and emotion with it. That's true. And I say all that to say, like, we're not anti-emotion. Right. What we're saying is emotion won't see you through. And what will see you through? Well, Luther says, remember that you're baptized. And the reason that we love the tactileness is because it gives us something concrete to keep that memory secure. And in that way, it, it's almost a very kind of Jewish approach. And by that, I mean, you know, for Jews, memory was, I am, I am remembering something that I am still actively a part of. Whenever they celebrated the, the, the Pascha, the Passover meal, right, that was a tactile experience and there was a ritual and a rite to it, but it engaged them bodily. And through that bodily experience, they were brought into memory and they were brought into emotion. They were brought into thought, but it was grounded in a, in a very real event in front of them instead of appealing to what I would call a very mystic experience, which is um, ungrounded from reality at all and almost an abandonment of the body for something spiritual in an, in an unhealthy way. We get a lot of information from a prayer, don't we? We do. How we pray really matters. Let's just jump straight to the book of Psalms. Uh, The first verse I want to read you out of Psalms 107, 1 through 2 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His mercy endures forever. You're you're putting up the time out sign. We've got to stop right now. He just got going, finally. What's going on? (laughs) Because He's He's bringing us into scripture that we all know. I, I love that. I love how inintent, unintentionally he's upholding our liturgy to us. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good. And I imagine so many of your listeners knew for his mercy endures forever. And what a wonderful picture that is. That's part of our, our, our liturgy. And it's kind of hardwired into us. That's all you have to say? <laughs> So you're, I'm just saying we, we're exposing people to this scripture more fully than this guy can. He's like, hey, let's look at this thing that you've probably never, you may have never looked at in your entire life. And, and what our people don't understand, what, what, what the people in, engaged in liturgy oftentimes don't understand is that we are immersing you in scripture. So, okay, so the liturgy immerses somebody in the scriptures. Whereas in this church, we already know what's taken place. Uh, There has been an extended worship set where the worship team has brought us into the presence of God. With some mediocre love love songs to Jesus. Then the pastor has gotten up and done a little bit of a uh, make you feel good, made some announcements about people signing up for different things. And then he's prayed uh, a, uh, what would we call that? That's a, a ex-corde prayer? 
Right, a prayer from the heart, which makes it more genuine, mm-hmm, of course, in, mm-hmm. in that way of thinking. And then when he started off here with this first verse, you're saying this service so far has been really devoid of Scripture, whereas the liturgy in a Lutheran church, everything that the pastor says, everything that the people say, everything that is sung, like it is steeped in Scripture. We're simply speaking back to God, what he has already said to us. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So. Thank you. So. Everybody say so. So. If you're redeemed, you know that the Lord is so good. You know that his love is so great. His mercy is so deep. His grace is so amazing. The Bible even says that God so loved us. So, like there's something special about that word so. But what he's wanting us to do is we're redeemed to be able to align our words with what we believe. So if you believe that the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever, then we would say so. All right, not bad. How strange it is to, uh, oh, I'm the redeemed of the Lord. So I'm going to say, so. So? so I, and, and it's so strange, right? It's, and, and that's the joke, right? And there's a little bit of humor in that. But do they understand what the so is? Because then he all of a sudden starts to complain that, well, the Lord is so great. The Lord is so good. And, and well, the so is. Well, then he used the uh, God so love the world. I mean, yeah. and, and the so is, oh, give thanks unto the Lord. So we speak thanksgiving to God. Why? For his mercy endures forever. And dollars to donuts, there's not going to be any talk about what God's mercy that gives us our thankful response is. God's mercy is the mercy revealed in Christ, which even the psalmist understood, even though he hadn't witnessed it uh, himself. He understood God's mercy revealed in this incomplete way through Old Testament history. Well, the mercy of God is revealed in the delivery of us from from slavery to Egypt. Well, the mercy of God is that he's given us this, this promised land as a home. The mercy of God is revealed that he has driven away our enemies time after time, and he has seen us through trouble. But he even knows that that is, that is a minor culmination to the, the full culmination of the promised Savior, the Savior that he promised to Adam and Eve, the Savior that he promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs, the Savior that he promised to David. All of that is, it, the, the real mercy is coming. And he longs for it, but he knows that God will deliver it because God has always been faithful and true. And that's how he thanks God. And I guarantee you this is just going to be a bland, be thankful. Because, because. Okay, let's hear what he has to say. Proverbs 18.21. It says this. It says the tongue, meaning our words, has power of life and death. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Our words have the power of life and death in them. You are where you are today in a large part due to what you have said about yourself and your future. You are in a large part where you are today. Words are like seeds. 
And when you speak something out, they get planted and they begin to grow. And over time, they produce fruit in your life. They're like seeds that get planted. Your words give life to something that becomes your reality. So whether you realize it or not, church, you're prophesying to yourself. You're prophesying about your future. Now, that's really good when you say great things. It's really great when you say things like, I am blessed and I am strong in the Lord. Like, that's a great thing to say for yourself and about your future. It's great to say, my faith is growing. It's great to say those things. You're prophesying. You're planting seeds in the ground that will grow and bear fruit in your life. It's great when you say, with God's help, I can accomplish anything. That's prophesying. Listen, that's not positivity. That's prophesying. Because the Bible says that our words have life and death in them. Well, what do you know, Pastor Oakry? I was not prepared for the narcissistic turn that this would take. Yeah, you thought it was going to be a sermon about Thanksgiving. Or being nice to other people, right? Speak kind words to others. I was so wrong. I told you it was witchcraft. Speak, speak kind words to yourself. Bolster yourself. I mean, this is like a... Um, the smiley guy on on Saturday Night Live looking in the mirror and, oh. and saying, doggone it, people <laughs> like me. And those words of affirmation, right. planting little seeds. And what's insane about this? Stuart Smalley. Stuart Smalley, that's right. Stuart Smalley, speaking those words of affirmation. What's crazy is he's taking, he's taking a scriptural idea, the word planting seeds and things and growing... But he's, but he's divorcing it. He's saying your words. And so far, it doesn't seem to matter whether those words are born out of God's word or not. As long as they're positive, they're good. And as long as they're negative, you're not negative. But we have the parable of the sower where God's word is planted into us and it grows which is interesting because I know you're on a three-year cycle at your church. We're on a one-year, but that is the text for uh, this coming Sunday. Oh, is that Sexagesima, right? yeah. Yeah, we're we're in the middle of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, which is tremendous law bringing us to our knees in repentance, which this guy's not going to get to because I'm assuming that would be negative words to speak to yourself. I'm a sinner, un- unable to keep. God's commandments. But one of the things that you said off air was that this text that this guy is quoting from, it's talking about the words that I speak to somebody else, to you or my wife or my children. Yeah, It's not necessarily talking about me prophesying certain things in my life. And if I don't have them, it's because I am telling myself Things that run contrary to to what I'm actually experiencing. Yeah, the book of Proverbs is full of wisdom. It is, and it's a practical kind of wisdom. And it's interesting. He's taken a total of three verses, I think, so far, and just kind of melded them together in a blender and picked a word here and picked a word there to help make the point that he was wanting to make. All along, right. The text is not shaping the sermon. The way that it does, say, for your sermons right. uh, or mine, uh, you, you come to the table 
And, and let me just speak about this table. Uh, a lot of churches, uh, the theme so far, uh, up until we get into, well, right about now, uh, in the church year, I mean, we started this new decade, 2020. So what do you think is the big overall theme? Well, it's vision and having a 2020 vision for your church and for your home and for your life. Oh, how many churches have we using 2020? Oh, oh, like all of them. Oh my goodness. It's, this is, this is the running joke. My wife and I have, I think I've shared this with Pastor Bruss. You know how middle school girls are. They they all think they want to be like so individual, so so unique. Right? Have you ever seen a group of middle school girls? Yeah, they're all the same. They're uniquely the same. (laughs) They wear the same. They talk the same. And that's the way it is with all of these churches, right? They they think they're so hip, so cool, so relevant, but they're all the same. And so the point that I'm making is, for all of January these churches have been running with this theme of vision. I could show you 50 churches that are preaching on this, but guess what? They're all starting to shift to right now. Now think about where we are in the worldly calendar. Love. Love. You got it. They're all yeah. talking about marriage. Jesus wants you to have a date night. And let's have uh did you see the church a couple years ago that did the 30, 30 day sex challenge for marriages? I heard about it. Also, where did they come up with the 30-day thing? It needs to be a proper 40, right? Everything should be in 40s if you're doing things in the church or 12. Well, I was thinking 144,000. Why couldn't we do that many days of... (laughs) We're going a little afield here. (laughs) Okay, so... All right, where were we? Well, we were just talking about how the Proverbs do speak wisdom to us. But it's it's not mysterious language. When you can, we can understand in a very practical way how our words can bring life or death to bear. We can either build someone up or we can tear them down. This is non-controversial stuff to say, which is most of the stuff in Proverbs is going to fall right in that category. The thing that makes Proverbs uh, different than just an advice column is that we understand buried in there that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and that we true we can't have true wisdom without God's wisdom and God's wisdom is revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we can't have wisdom unless we're going to that source of mercy and love and forgiveness. The redeemed of the Lord should say, we should say what God is saying. We should have faith in what we say. But some people are actually prophesying their own destruction because they say things like, oh, I'll never get that job. They say things like, oh, it's just too hard. They'll say something like, well, it's flu season. I bet I get sick this year. I bet you do too. I'll never find my my perfect spouse. I'll never find Mr. or Mrs. Wright. I'm probably going to fail my test in chemistry. Life is just too hard. Listen, if these are the seeds you are planting, then don't be surprised when your life is difficult and you know life is spiraling downhill and you don't get the breaks and you can barely have your needs met. If you speak negativity, you're planting a harvest of problems. Amen? Amen. 
Some people, I think, are planting cactus seeds hoping for an apple tree. Amen, Pastor Oakry. Can't we, uh, can't we get behind what he's saying here? No. What? What? You're planting a negative seed right then and right there. I just saw it going. Well, around. I'm gonna I'm gonna hold him to his word. Okay. We are going to speak what God has spoken to us. Yeah, he did say that, didn't he? He did say that, and then he said a bunch of gobbledygook that God hadn't said anything about. Okay. So now, what do we? What commandment is that breaking right there? Well, always the first, but primarily, I would say the second. Yeah, he's misusing the name of the Lord yeah. God, is he not? Because yeah. he's teaching these people, God's little sheep. He is teaching them something that God never said, never intended, never. Right. right. God has never promised you uh, that if you think positive thoughts, you're going to pass your chemistry test. He hasn't. And in fact, he is in, he encourages us to daily speak negative words to ourselves. Against you and you alone have I sinned. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, what is this guy going to say to Jesus on the cross? Don't be such a downer, Jesus. This You're only being crucified because you weren't positive enough about your life? I mean... You have to think through the implications of them because on the surface, this power of p positive thinking stuff. Now, see, he's dodging a bullet there. He's like, oh, this isn't positive thinking. This is prophecy. Well, I mean, you can repackage an Oreo, but it's still an Oreo. It is totally destructive to our Christian faith because it peels you away from God's word where we say negative things. I'm a sinner. I failed. I fear about the future. And... My hope isn't in my positive thoughts. My hope is in the word that God has spoken to me in Jesus Christ, that he is holding on to me, that he has these things in his hands. But then you think through this, the implication of it, all of this is fine when you're dealing with kind of your average suburban middle-class crisis, having a rough go at work. I just need to be more positive and muscle through. What do you say to the person starving to death in Africa? If you had thought a little bit more positively... You would have food in your belly right now, but... Sorry, you brought this on yourself. There's always that inverse implication that they never talk about. They always want you to think positive and, you know, you bring garbage into your life when you think negatively. And then it's like, and, and it's easy to say, well, no wonder you bring all this bad stuff on yourself when the, when the things that bring, an, when the bad things are mere annoyances or mild setbacks. But when we think about the totality of people's lives... There are people out there who are legitimately suffering in a way that this guy doesn't even have on his radar. Sure. A number of years ago, you probably remember it, and I'm sure many of our listeners do, this movie that came out. Uh, Oprah was uh, touting it, and a lot of religious leaders were were advancing it as well, but it was The Secret. Do you remember this? I do remember The Secret. And, uh, man, it lit up the church because a lot of people— audit hook line and sinker it's the same garbage that we're hearing right here sure because the sinful ear loves this stuff the things that are holding me back are inside me mm -hmm. but overcomable and that's what the sinner loves to hear because it's not like we don't see ourselves struggling but isn't it wonderful when someone comes along and says no 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 your problems aren't as insur insurmountable as you think 
you just need to start thinking more positively and all of this all the juice will start going and and you'll you'll get there why did steven get stoned in this way of thinking was he sowing negative thoughts in his life uh, beforehand of course not or did he give a positive witness to christ to people that didn't want to hear it and they and they killed him and we rejoice in that because we know that his fate is not viewed in his bloody dead body that his fate is viewed in heavenly glory that he understood that this life is not enough that the life to come is the life we hope in and the problem with this kind of thinking is that it it basically teaches you that the christian faith is to create your best life now to steal from another false teacher false teacher your best life is not now that isn't to say that there isn't good and blessing in this life scripture teaches that and we we love that and we want that Uh, we pray for it in the lord's prayer we pray for it but to put your hopes in this life and not realize that it's the next life that god i have gone to prepare a place for you right that's where we we long for and that's why we pray come lord jesus come quickly there's no room for this for that in this guy's thinking. that's defeatist thinking in this guy's thinking we'd say that listen i said it just then we're so programmed to say things that are negative i started out with and this total slip but i said something to the fact that i won't inspire with by what i say how bad is that you don't want to be here today if I don't have something that's going to inspire you. You're like, come on, pastor, do better than that. Listen, our words have to line up with what God is saying. You can't talk negatively and expect a positive life. You can't have a poor mouth and expect a rich life. Listen, if you have a poor mouth, you know you're going to have a poor life. Doesn't this just make you want to evaluate everything that you that you say and make sure that it's positive? Well, this is what it does, because this is law, is it makes you walk on eggshells. Where he even had to confess. Confess himself. And what what a strange place he put himself in with his own words. Now I was joking. Uh, maybe the maybe God put those words in his mouth that this was not going to be an inspiring message because it wasn't going to be breathed <laughs> out by God. Uh, mm-hmm. But this idea that now I'm policing my, the very words that come out of my mouth, regardless of what's happening in my actions, like oh I said something negative, reset the day, and what a horrible way to approach life. I mean, my words don't decisively make my world better it's my trust in the word of god that does and he keeps saying we need to align ourselves with what god says but he never tells us what god says he'll get to it he'll get to it okay but again what is he going to do he's going to run through the bible and he's going to pry out these verses that really are not they're really not yours or mine to claim You know, like one of my favorite ones that you hear evangelical Christians say all the time is, I know the plans that I have for you, saith the Lord. (laughs) If you only knew the context (laughs) of what Jeremiah was saying. You go into people's houses and they've got that on their mantle somewhere. Or the, uh, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who, who gives me strength. Now, 
It's a context issue. If you would just read where that passage comes from and see the all things are dealing with a lot or dealing with a little. But I've gone to the YMCA and seen that in the workout room, plastered above a mirror. I could do all things, like, you know, deadlift this 500 pounds. Well, no, I can't. Right. So to clue people in on why these texts taken out of context can be bad, it doesn't make them bad. If that's your favorite verse, it's fine, because there is a beautiful... Uh, truth in that but you it actually becomes more beautiful when you know the full context which is exactly babylonian captivity he's saying look i'm about to take everything away from you everything every good thing you thought you had it's going to be gone and for 70 years you are going to be in a in a foreign land in a foreign place and i want you to get married and do all this stuff i want you like figure yourself out there but i know the plans i have for you and see, there's, this is an utter denial of prosperity gospel, right? which is bad stuff happens, but I've still got this, God says. But I would go back to a point that you've already made. Just that verse alone carries this exact same theme of death and resurrection. You know, them going away to Babylon, that was death, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. But what he's saying is, my plan is to resurrect you. And we see this with not only Israel, but we see this with so many of the the women that the scriptures highlight who are barren. There's death there, death and resurrection. We see it with Lazarus, we see it with Jesus, and we see it with ourselves in that we're born dead in our sins and our trespasses, but we've passed via baptism, we've passed from death to life. I mean, this is a this is a running theme. And I'm just trying to underscore your point. When you understand a passage like that in its bigger context, the Bible is so much better than yahoos like this that we're listening to make it out to be. Right. And again, individual scripture is wonderful. We all have our little we all have a confirmation verse and, and something like that. And those things can be good for our faith. But there is a reason those words are connected to other words around them. And proof texting, which is what this guy's doing, he's hip, he's skipping around scripture, finding verses, and then you'll even see he's not fully applying the verse itself. He's just taking the part out of the verse that works for what he wants to say and saying it. That is poison. And here's how you know it's poison. The people who are the best at proof texting the Bible are atheists. They can go into scripture and they can pluck out this thing and they say, look, Look at what their Bible says. And you're like, yeah, but in, in, you don't even understand it in its context. You just don't like those words. And if the atheists are that good at proof texting, we need to be real careful when we start skipping around uh, in Scripture. And that's why we use long readings to shape what we preach on. And even those sometimes aren't adequate because uh, no one, want, I mean, we try to be mindful of the fact that you know, reading two chapters of scripture as part of our weekly readings is going to be cumbersome to the to the structure we currently have. Although there is a time and a place for that, and you'll see it. Is sometimes you will have through readings of epistles in the lectionary, and so it's like as you're showing up each Sunday, you are walking through the entirety of a book of the Bible, which is great. But we're always trying to connect the dots and make bigger connections, even outside of the text as given. Uh, so that the big picture can be seen. And that's the only way you can be faithful in proclaiming these things. All of that is to say, 
this man's approach, which is a very motto-ish approach, right? You can't have a poor mouth and expect a rich life. Man, put that on a t-shirt and sell 100,000 of them. Because I guarantee, I mean, it, it's pithy, it sounds good to the ear, but it's not scripture. That's the point. Let's look at another verse, James. It's the book of James, chapter 3, 9. It says, with the tongue... We praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings. With our words, we have the ability to praise or curse. Our words have so much power in them, and we can choose to praise and bless, or we can choose to curse. I believe you can either bless your life or curse your life. Why on earth would I not be speaking a praise and a blessing into someone else's life? Well, that's what the text said. To other people. Right. And we want to be clear here. It's not human beings. It's people made in the image of God, which is so much more powerful than what he's even trying to make it say. And this is the problem with paraphrasing. But beyond that, he keeps turning it back in on the self. Speak a word of blessing and praise. To that, I will say yes. But then he's like, to yourself. No, why? Why do I? And, and this actually misses the point of even being a Christian. I don't have to speak to myself positively because God has always already spoken to me a more positive image of myself than I can ever have. This blows this, this prosperity gospel nonsense out of the water. If we even had a glimpse of what we look like to God's eyes in Jesus Christ, we would never have a bad day for the rest of our lives. I don't think so. Because how even does, if we said bad words? Even if we said bad words, because what happens when God looks at us through Jesus Christ? He sees a saint. He sees a perfect person. He says, you're awesome, and I love you, and I want you to live with me forever. And those aren't just words. That's the truth of what Christ has made, made us. And he's trying to say, well, just give yourself a better, get a raise at your job. God has spoken the best possible word to us in Jesus Christ. And then he's saying, but you got to keep saying good things to yourself. When in fact, what we're encouraged to do in James and elsewhere in scripture is to speak that good word, that benediction to others. You just used a liturgical word. I know. And, and bene good and diction word. It's the good word. And when I give the benediction, I say, receive the benediction. I pick that up at my, my first church, and I like it because it helps, I think, frame what is happening. I'm not just speaking these words as the, as the holy see you later. When I say, may the Lord bless you and keep you, may the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious unto you, may he uh, shine his countenance upon you and give you peace, that's God's good word to you. That's a blessing he is literally laying upon you not me him and i am blessed not to speak that word to myself but i'm blessed to speak it to you that's right and this is exactly what the lord said i mean we call it the ironic blessing in that the lord said to bless my people this is from numbers to bless my people you put my name on them so when you stand before your congregation and you say, essentially, look, you know, it's kind of like the, uh, uh, you remember the coach at, at baseball who would say, okay, left field's coming to you, right? 
you stand before your people and you say, okay, I'm getting ready to pronounce the benediction. Those words, as you say, are not just a smell you later, thanks for coming. You are placing, I mean, there is something that is happening there. You are placing the very name of God upon the people, just like you did at the very beginning of the service when you said in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, the liturgical service is sandwiched, so to speak, between you placing the name of God upon the people of God, just like the name was placed upon them in their baptism. Right. The narcissism of constantly flipping it back on yourself should be striking to anyone listening to this. By your words. Are you blessing your life? Are you cursing your life? Our words can bless our future or they can curse our future. Every time you say things like, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, my marriage will always struggle. Or if you say, my kids will never get a job and move out. (laughs) Kidding. My children both got jobs and moved out. But my point is, is when you say things that are negative, when you say things that are, are um, in, in a way that is pulling your life down, then your words are going to prophesy your future. You're cursing yourself. You're cursing your own marriage and your future. When you say things like, I'll never break this addiction. I'll never keep this goal. I'll never lose this weight. I'll never write that book. I'll never meet Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright. Like, no, no, no. We have to stop that language. Stop cursing your future. Come on, with a mouth like that, you don't need the devil coming after you. You're speaking your own destruction. Are you blessing or cursing your life? Hey, just in a kind of a personal way, I I felt like in 2019 as I was doing a little reflection that I found myself in some ways cursing my life. So I was doing a little reflection of 2019, which is helpful to do because uh, you should always learn from mistakes and you should always celebrate the victories. Uh, You don't wallow in your mistakes, but it's good to learn from them. And so I was in a learning process about some of 2019 And I was realizing there had been some places in my life that I did not meet some of my own expectations on what I wanted to accomplish in my life. I missed some goals. Uh, There were some setbacks in church life. Uh, There were just a few difficulties that came our way. And out of that, I had what I would call a low-key depression. Now, just if you know me, you know low-key depression is typically extremely optimistic for the rest of the world. But in my life, it was a low-key depression. I typically am on a scale of 1 to 10 and 11 when it comes to optimism and life is getting better. And so I dropped it down to like an 8. So, you know, not real bad, but it was me. All right, so just relate to my world. And I was just in this low-key depression. I was just in, you ever just been in a funk in your life? You like, just, you just were like, it wasn't moving smoothly. And I started, and I remember looking back, and I remember saying some things like this. I said, I guess this is just how it's going to be for us. So now this sermon really has taken a wild turn because, I mean, he's using himself, of course, as an example. I mean, you could see this coming, right? I mean, he's in a low-key depression, and he's going to evaluate, oh, 
I know why things haven't gone my way. It's because I've said some negative things. I've planted some some seeds in my life that have come to fruition. And as a result, this is why I haven't achieved the goals that I set out to achieve. And this is why I'm kind of down. I like how he says, I'm going to tell a personal story. And then he just kind of vaguely recounts what happened the year before. There's no personal investment in that. There's no specific stakes. Not, hey, this happened and boy, I got my teeth really knocked in and I was feeling pretty bummed. It's, hey, I was just thinking about what happened the year before and they're refusing. It's completely in line with the rest of the sermon. There's no specificity in this, which is honestly him trying to protect himself, I'm sure. But there's no candor in what he's saying here. I mean, it's it's that it's so vague that everybody can kind of just plug themselves in and say, yeah, I guess I've been low-key depressed before, bummed, or, you know, just kind of like, oh, shucks, that, that, one, that, that didn't work out, you know. And again, he's keeping it at such a level of badness. Oh, I wasn't depressed, because I don't want you guys to think that I need some help. I was just low-key depressed. And we can all kind of be like, well, okay. I'll get specific. I think about my sister and her daughter, Elizabeth. Elizabeth was born in her heart in the wrong place. Hmm. She lived for five months and died. That took the wind out of my family completely. Sure. Did she die because I wasn't thinking positive thoughts? We don't just pick ourselves up by thinking more positive thoughts. There's a hole in our lives for the rest of, for the rest of our lives here on earth. But we know we'll see her in heaven. That, she was baptized in the hospital. We rejoice in that truth. And that truth carries us through to the better life that God has in store for us. No amount of positive thinking on my part is going to change that scenario. And when you talk about scenarios like that, he's, he, this guy can't say anything to that. The only thing that can carry me through that scenario is, is the positive truth of God's word, that death is not the final, the final say here. And it's because God made a promise, and he keeps Amen. his promise. Amen. And boy, we have to remind ourselves of that promise a lot. Uh, especially around those really painful scenarios. And we do that in our family and uh, how critical that is. I don't speak positive words to myself about it. I go to my sister and say positive words to her. She says positive words to me. and Which is exactly what James says to do, right? I know, right? <laughs> but no, you got to speak them to yourself because oh. it's all about you. Oh, man. Like I say those words now, it tastes like bitter words in my mouth. But I said that. I remember looking back with a conversation with my bride saying, well, we tend to take two steps forward and three steps back sometimes. I'm cursing us, our church. I found myself even at one point speaking negatively about my age. No, I'm not that old. But, you know, you, I was just, I don't know why I was doing it. Um, I'm 53. That's not old. That is not old. Amen, people. Say that. <laughs> now, to you guys that are 20, you're like, you're ancient. But 53 is not that old, I promise you. But somehow in my mind, I started framing my conversation. And I would go to the gym, and I would say things like, well, I did okay today considering my age. Well, it was kind of okay, but what I was doing was limiting myself with my words. I said things like, 
Well, now that I'm older, I probably shouldn't try that. Now, maybe a little wisdom. But the point I'm making is, is I was framing my mind and my attitude and my words based on a limitation. And I was saying what I couldn't do rather than what God can do. I began to speak negatively about myself. And guess what? I ate my words last year. I injured my shoulder because I spoke negatively about myself. I believe I talked myself into some of that. I even injured, I I sprained a ligament in my big toe. Who does that? I did it walking on the golf course. You know you've cursed yourself when you get hurt golfing. I finished 2020, I'm sorry, 2019, weaker, slower, more overweight than when I started the year, and I believe my negative words became my reality. That was painful to get through, wasn't it? I do not like this man very much. Oh, he's a nice guy. No. He's a a serpent. He's a wolf uh, plaguing the sheep, and... The very fact that he can only crouch suffering in a hurt toe, a hurt shoulder, and being a little bit overweight at the end of the year. You and I know we have to wait. We go to the hospital and we wade into suffering. I I remember once, I and it... I, I, I ran away because I was very young and as a pastor and inexperienced. I went into a hospital room once where a man who had a bruise on his back was literally writhing in pain. And I was completely unprepared for it uh, because I had this expectation in my head that if you're in the hospital, maybe lots of bad stuff is happening, but at least they're managing your pain. No. This pain was beyond the power of the medicines we have to control. And he's just writhing and wishing he was dead. And I said a prayer with his wife and she was like, I don't, I'm very unhappy with this situation. I said, yep, anyway, let's pray, gotta go. Because I wasn't prepared for that kind of suffering. Yeah. His words mean nothing in that context. His words mean nothing when you're going to a person who is dying who's just had a stroke, who's just had a heart attack, who's just lost a loved one. Well, your wife just died. Don't you wish you had been more positive about things before that happened? There's no room for death in this man's thinking, in his theology, in what he's proclaiming. What do you say to someone who's experienced death? So he's a wolf hoping to lead the sheep into his gaping jaws where there is nothing but death. And so his words are death words. I mean, I want to be real clear about that. And that's why we do this. I mean, it's easy to make fun of him and all of those things. But ultimately, he is one of those false teachers that we need to flee. But we also need to speak out against very harshly. Because this is death. Because there's no hope for you in in real suffering. Anything, everything he's talking about. You could handle without God's blessing upon you. Tons of atheists and non-believers and heathens in the world deal with shoulder pain and sprained toes 
and being overweight, there's no space in this that he's providing. I mean, he's talking about what God is saying to him, but what does God say to me? I'm overweight. I don't feel like a failure because I'm a child of God. Absolutely, there's a place in the Christian life for us to aspire to be who God calls us to be. There is something aspirational about the Christian life. And if we're going to kind of try to pull a, a nugget out of this garbage pile, um, I think sometimes Lutherans can be downers about the human reality of a Christian. The human reality is total depravity, utter loss, dead to sin. I am a poor, miserable sinner. Yeah. And I think sometimes we continue to kind of be like, and don't get your hopes up once you're a Christian, because it's still kind of the same crummy sandwich. Well, okay, that's true. But there's so much joy to find in this life as well. And scripture's full of that joy. And I think there is a, is, is a place for being aspirational. But we, we, we don't speak aspiration to ourselves. The thing we do, the way we bring, we, the way we bring that identity to bear is to each other. When you speak positively to me and encouragingly to me and I speak the same to you, and instead of treating each other like garbage, but this guy wants you to be so wrapped up in your own life that you're going to step over the, the homeless person on the street for the sake of your self-improvement. Well, and because that guy who's homeless on the street, he brought it on himself, right. clearly. I mean, if you give him too much attention, he's just going to be a bummer to you and bring those negative thoughts to bear. And instead, what we have is a God who invites us to get our hands messy with the lives of people whose lives are disasters, just like Christ did, without fear. Because what was the Jewish fear? That their sin would pollute them. And Jesus said, no, my purity and my goodness, what I am bringing, I can touch a leper and they don't make me dirty. I make them pure. I can touch a woman with a discharge of blood and she doesn't make me dirty. I make her pure. And we get to bring that purity, not our own purity, but God's purity revealed in Christ, revealed in the cross. We get to bring it on bear and that's bringing death to life, just like you're talking about. What's this guy doing? He's bringing, he's bringing nothing but death. Nothing but death. And that is why we can laugh at him some. And there is humor here. But ultimately, we need to be appalled by what he is saying. And, and, and say this, has, this, this language has no voice. No voice in, in the Christian world. Yeah, what Pastor Bruss teaches our catechumens is that when you hear preaching like this, and he says, this is the only time you get to cuss in church. Run like hell. Amen. So, 2020, I've gotten a lot smarter, people. I've wised up a little bit. I want you to wise up a little bit about your 2020 as well. So I've changed my confession, my declaration. And so I went to Isaiah 41:31. If you've not read this verse lately, this is a great way to build yourself back up. And I began to say, those who trust in the Lord... And so I just put it personalized. I said, when I trust in the Lord, I find new strength. Now, how do we trust in the Lord? Well, you do 21 days of prayer. I believe the Lord spoke to me and said, during 21 days of prayer, you're going to find new strength in your life, both physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Those who trust in the Lord, I trust in the Lord. I will find new strength. I will soar on wings like eagles. 
Listen, I'm getting out of the chicken coop and pecking on the ground. And God said, look up and start soaring like an eagle. See your life different and begin to say something different. So now I say, watch me fly, people. Now, I'm not saying that arrogantly. I'm saying what the Word says. I will run and not grow weary. To all my CrossFit buddies, you watch me run this week. I'm going to run like the wind. They will walk. Listen, walk or run, I don't want to faint. I will be strong. You've got to reframe your words about your future. I've changed my attitude. I've changed my words. I don't say I'm too old or things won't work out anymore. I don't want to talk that way. Now I'm saying things like I feel stronger. I feel healthier. I feel thinner. I'm even like stretching a little bit and saying, Tim, you look better looking every day. Yeah, there you go. Pastor Oakery, you, you mentioned that you were a little bit overweight. Listen, this is all you got to do is start saying, I feel thinner. I, I love how he's, he, he, he literalizes the running and the walking. He does not literalize the flying. No, he didn't. Yeah. He's like, watch me with my CrossFit, buddy. I'm going to be running for real. He's like, are you going to really be flying? Because if we're just going to be dealing with Scripture in those contexts, let's deal with it consistently. But no, he can't because he knows he's not going to fly. Although it seems like, based on what he's preaching here... He should be able to. That's just a negative thought. And if he perishes that from his mind, what can't he accomplish? Well, he's like, well, you know, we still have the law of gravity. We need to recognize the law-law turn here. The law that he's pushing us away from is the law of being down on yourself and, and saying bad things and being like, oh, you know. And, and, and it's such a strange law to run away from since it's a law that we embrace in the Lutheran Church every Sunday. I'm a poor, miserable sinner. I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. There is nothing much more miserable or negative that you can say about yourself. I deserve death. And not just physical death. But eternal death. Damnation. And we say all of those things. And then we say, but for the sake of your son Jesus Christ. Right? Not for my sake. Not because of my positive thoughts. Not because of any change in really who I am at all. Other than that Christ has come to me externally and changed me. He has clothed this dead body with righteousness and life. And being clothed in it, it isn't just putting a putting lipstick on a corpse. It actually brings life to me. Sure. And this goes again back to our death and resurrection theme. We come in with our sins. We confess them. We don't justify ourselves or, or blame somebody else. We own up to them. The pastor then speaks. Now, talk about speaking words of life. He he bespeaks righteousness to us in that this is gospel, this absolution. We are forgiven. The problem that we're hearing, which is the point you're making, there is no gospel here. No, it's, it's, it's a new law. If you train yourself to hear this, you will be well equipped to hear lots of really bad sermons. Most really bad sermons will follow this pattern. It's called law, law which means here's bad law, now do this good law. The bad law is being down on yourself. The good law is being up on yourself. 
you're still the one doing the doing. Uh, and as we learned in catechism, as we learned as compromands, the law shows us our sin and the law demands from us. The gospel shows us our savior and it shows how God gives to us. God is giving nothing in this sermon, nothing. He may be giving some advice, but that's advice that you have to pick up and apply to your own life. God doesn't just give forgiveness like advice. He puts it on us directly in the waters of baptism, in that word of absolution, in uh, his body and blood given and shed on the cross, which is received in communion. He gives it. And what's really strange to me is the way this guy's talking, he's taking the power of God and making it his own, which is deeply blasphemous. The being who has the power to speak and have it happen in our life is God. When God says, be healed, you are healed. When God says, be forgiven, you are forgiven. We don't have the power to just say to ourselves, be thin, be healthy, uh, be younger, whatever those things are. And to try to take that power from God and apply it to ourselves where he would not have it be applied is deeply blasphemous, is, is like you say, the, breaking the second commandment just shattering it. I'm gonna I'm gonna make God's name apply to things that God not only didn't apply it to, but said, "Don't ever apply my my name to that." It's so dark. Uh, it, it it is it is satanic to to put people into this frame of thinking that it's not God's word that needs to change me. I need my own word to change me. Why not use your words to bless your life? instead of cursing your life. If you want to change your future, church, change your words. Amen? Amen. I also want to say thank you to the hundreds of people in our church who have been praying for Harriet and I and our staff. I believe that part of the reason why I'm out of my funk today is that we went into 21 days of prayer and I've heard from so many of you saying, you're praying for us. And I appreciate the prayers. I feel the prayers. And I want to say thank you. God works through prayers. Amen? Amen. Our words matter, though. Our words have weight. The Bible says that our words are not just sounds. They're more than a way of communication. Our words have the power to produce life and death in them. And because our words have weight, we should intentionally use our words to align with God's vision for our life. In the book of Job, chapter 22, 28, it says, You also declare a thing. To declare something means to make a statement of faith about something. Declare something, and it will be established for you. So what you declare becomes your future. What you declare by faith gets established in your life. We should declare God's vision. We should declare God's promises over our life and our future. And God says it will be established in our life. So here's the key, church. You need to intentionally send your words out in the direction you want your life to go. Intentionally. The Bible says to declare a thing. Declare a thing. What kind of thing? What are you going to declare in your life? I'm declaring, I'm praying about my future. I'm declaring it. Your words of declaration are like a, I think they're kind of like a little construction crew. Some of you have been in construction. 
I've never built anything in my life, so I'm just telling you what I've heard. Uh, but a little construction crew, your words are like a little construction crew with little hammers and, and little saws. And, and when you say a thing, when you speak and declare a thing, that little construction crew goes out and starts building it. They start building whatever you're speaking in your life. The things that you declare become established in your life. That's why I and you want to begin to declare your breakthrough. You want to declare that my family is coming back together. You want to declare that my health is being restored. You want to declare that I am blessed, I am strong. You want to declare that 2020 is going to be the best year to date. You want to declare those things by faith. The Bible says that it will be established for you when you declare a thing. Most people, including myself, just jumping in the boat with all of us, we talk about our current circumstances, especially when they're difficult. Our language tends to line up with our circumstances and not the vision of our life. When we talk about our difficulties all the time, what we're doing is, is we're establish our, establishing ourselves in that defeat. Let me say it another way. Our words perpetuate our problems when we talk about them too much. Okay, he's just saying the same thing over and over, just different ways. I probably sure. let him go on too long there. But uh, when was the only time that we heard about Jesus so far? In his opening prayer, he said, In the name of Jesus, amen. Jesus has not entered the picture otherwise in this sermon. So is this a Christian sermon? It's a satanic sermon. Oh, and I say that because what does Satan try to get us to do? He tries to get us to trust in ourselves, not in, not in God, but not God generically. God and the power of God revealed in, in Jesus Christ on the cross. So it's the difference between sound words and false words. Yes. And let's be real clear here. If somebody comes into my office as a pastor and says, our marriage is on the rocks, I, I want you to desire that marriage to work. But I, but I want that because that's what God wants. Um, it's not just projecting my own positivity onto it. And there's a, there's a sickness buried in this too, which we hear as pastors sometimes. Well, pastor, I want to be happy. And God just happened to put this person in my life at the bar who's not my spouse. And they make me pretty happy. And so I'm going that direction and I'm leaving my family behind. Uh, and obviously this is what God wants because I desired happiness. I spoke happiness into my life and I'm getting it in this short term. But right, there's no establishment in God's word in that. And and I I would like to imagine, I mean, he hasn't talked, spoken specifically to this. I would like to imagine that this pastor would say, oh, no, no, no. Right. That's not, you can't desire that. But who knows? Um, he's speaking a lot of other unscriptural things into people's lives too. This is why this is so insidious. Of course, we want people to desire the good things of God. And there is a certain truth. When we desire them and when we fight for them, we can recognize and we can thank the Lord when those things are, are added to us, when there is healing and, and there is restoration. And, and we wouldn't deny that those things aren't just possible. They're likely in the Christian faith. But I... I also leave a lot of space for the fact that there are times when people get sick and they don't get better and their positivity has nothing to do with it or their negativity. It is, it is simply what it is. And God has set their time. 
He knows, and he's got it in his hands. And so we, we can't take control of the situation from God. In fact, what God encourages us to do is the opposite. Let me be in control of the situation. And when we let him be in control of our marriages and our other relationships and our life, yeah, good things come out of that. Um, but he also says you're going to be beset by things in this life working against you too. And that is not a sign of my disfavor. It's not a sign of me cursing you. It's a sign of me, of you simply living in a sinful and broken world, which I have worked mightily to pull you out of so that you can live forever in a better place. It's so perverse because, again, there is, there is like this tiny little grain of truth in what he's saying, but he, he twists it and perverts it so much that you're going to walk away from this with so many mistaken ideas about how to go forward. We have to come as sinners and be forgiven and humbly lifted up by our Lord and Savior. All right. So like I said earlier, I think he has already said everything that he's going to say here, and now he's just going to repeat himself. And so if it's okay with you, Pastor Oakry, what I'd like to do is just speed him up a little bit. I think that's that's going to be helpful for us to process through. We talk about this sometimes where uh, Lutherans preach... 15 to 20 minute sermons. Right. And the evangelicals kind of look at us and scoff. I'm preaching 30, 40, 50 minutes. Sure. Well, they would say something like, uh, you guys preach sermonettes for Christianettes. And there is a there is a baseline, I think, you, you where you preach such a small amount that you're not getting into the meat. But what I've been discovering listening to these folks is there's a lot of fluff and there is a lot of repetition. We're covering the same territory in a quicker time. So you're welcome, Lutherans. <laughs> we're not we're not gonna waste your we're we're all we're all thriller, no filler. <laughs> all right, so here we go. We perpetuate it. You talk about your problems all the time, you're just gonna stay in a cycle of that. So check this cool verse out. I love this verse. Check this verse. This is in Joel. Joel three ten says, Let the weak say, I am strong. Let the weak say, I am strong. Notice it doesn't say, let the weak talk about how weak they are all day long. Let the weak gather in a, in a life group and complain and criticize their life and curse their life. It doesn't say that. It actually says the exact opposite of that. It says that the weak declare how they will feel because God's hand is on their life. How they will feel because they are redeemed of the Lord. See, you have a right to claim, I am strong, because we know we are redeemed. That's why it says the redeemed of the Lord say, why? Because we're redeemed so we can take our weak difficulties and circumstances and turn that around and declare, I am strong in the Lord. God has a great future for my life. 2020 is going to be great. Why? Because I am redeemed of the Lord and we say so. Pastor Oakry, he really believes this wholeheartedly, doesn't he? That if he can just declare these, what, aphorisms over his life, then my goodness, 2020 will just be a banner year. Right. But if you really believe it, he did this in 2019, I'm sure, and 2018. I mean, this is kind of New Year's resolution stuff. This is going to be my best year ever. And then you get through the year and you look back and you say, this next year is going to be the best year ever, right? You, you, have, you have a lot of questions. That actually reminds me this pattern of our life that's set in the morning and evening prayer. There's nothing wrong with this. Waking up in the morning or starting the year and saying, Lord, I am starting afresh today, and I need you, your forgiveness, your grace and mercy, to carry me through the day, 
so that I have a, a great day. And we pray that. We do. In the morning prayer, we say, thank you for keeping me this night and, and then help me to confront the day. But then we come in at night fully acknowledging that we messed up. Forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong. Yeah, isn't that fascinating that the morning and evening prayer, I mean, it's the exact same except acknowledging at the end of the day, mm, right. I've sinned. Right, because we, we are realizing our inadequacy in ourselves to make the day or the week or the month or the year or our lives great in themselves. And this is the Lutheran difference is every day, every experience of that is a return to the cross for us to be refreshed and renewed so that we can start afresh again and this is the problem this man has no concept of coming back to the cross and being renewed i mean he's not talking about the cross or forgiveness at all anyway and i think in his mind needing to come to the cross is a sign of failure because that just means that i haven't grasp my potential like I should. And this is the joy of being a Christian that he's missing and that we can so often miss in our own sinfulness. I reach my potential in the forgiveness of sins. The, The forgiveness isn't a bug. It's a feature of our faith. And we never get tired of, of having Christ say to us, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. And there's no space for that in what this man is saying. And that's what makes it so poisonous. God, and maybe Jesus, if he gets there, becomes maybe a battery that charges up your life. But then you go get it. And if you don't go get it, that's your fault. Instead, we see Christ not as a battery charging us up, but as a savior graciously walking with us every step of the way, both encouraging us, but also comforting us. And that's the great joy. And that is indeed the Lutheran difference in all of this. And and I love going through these sermons just so that we can emphasize those Lutheran distinctives contra what the nonsense this man's saying. I have a one-point message for you today. Dare to declare your vision in opposition to your current position. Dare to declare your vision in opposition to your current position. So wherever you are, was in part due to your words, but wherever you'll be, will be in part due to your words. And so I really am not interested too much about your current position, other than I care, I'll pray for you. I don't care about where you're at, except I do care and I'll pray. But you see how he treats that as almost a shameful thing. This is the problem with all of this. It's so shameful that you fail and that you mess up. Look, we are going to fail and mess up. And, and sometimes we need a kick in the pants. I, I totally get that. Sometimes we're just kind of wallowing in sin or wallowing in, in our failure. And sometimes the best thing you can get is a good kick in the pants. But there are so many other situations in life where what we don't need is a kick in the pants. We just need somebody to actually be like, well, I'll pray for you if I have to. How about, can I can I get down with you in this mess and, and just show you a little bit of Christ's love through how I love you. I mean, that's that's what we're called to be as Christians. And he's treating all of that as, as the worst kind of thing because you're not thinking positively enough. Well, it's hard to think positively when your spouse dies. It's hard to think positively when you get a cancer diagnosis. And and to come to that person and be like, you got you to think positive. 
you're just putting a horrible Auburn on. See, it sounds good to our ears when things aren't awful, but think about saying that to a person who's truly hurting. And then you're just saying, oh, you've got a crummy day? Well, here, let me put a little extra weight on your shoulders that I expect you to carry on your own. Christ isn't going to help you with this because this is all on you. But I do like I do like rhyming. <laughs> it's really good. I don't. We don't rhyme enough. You know, and, and I don't. I well, personally, I, I, I you know what it reminds me of Jesse Jackson. He was always a good rhymer. Or and or the OJ <laughs> trial, right? If the glove does not fit, you must acquit. It's so. It's so. I mean, I remember that line. When was that trial? Thirty years ago. <laughs> We still remember that line. We need to rhyme more in our sermons. I, I will. So you're you're taking what this guy's doing with uh, his whole shenanigans there. I can't remember what he just no, said. Me so. neither. <laughs> <laughs> but it was good. I mean, it's. I mean, when he said, it, "I was like, oh, that's smooth like butter." <laughs> I mean, it was it was nice. But it, but theologically, it was completely wrong. Right. It just, it, it just sounded yeah. It sounded pleasing to the ear from a from a linguistic standpoint. It was awful to the ear from a from what God actually teaches standpoint. But I believe God has something for you in 2020 when you align your words to the promises of God in your life. So wherever you are right now, it doesn't matter where you where you've been. I promise you, you get your words in line, and you'll finish somewhere different this year. Your life can be better. Your life can be stronger. Your life can be healthier. Your marriage can be restored. Your grades can improve. Nothing is impossible for our God. We need to get our faith on fire. We need to praise God. We need to get our praise on, and we need to get our words in line with our Savior, and let the redeemed of the Lord say, "God is so good. He is so merciful. He is so full of grace." Your words have weight. Amen. You agree with that? That's a that's a slow clap. Working our way into it. But I appreciate it. I don't think the people really are buying what he's laying down, or at least I hope that's indicative of the slow clap. I don't know. Sometimes you just catch people off guard. I figure they're used to doing this stuff during his sermons, though. Yeah. And, and they're even like, oh, I don't know about all that. But if they're questioning it, that's a good sign. Now... They're not going to stop coming to church there, no. unfortunately. No. But at least they're putting two and two together saying, this can't work. Scripturally speaking, God's people generally tend to be better than false teachers. You see that in Scripture all the time. Uh, the false teachers lead people astray, but the people can be brought back. The false teacher can't because they're staking a lot on what they're saying. Um, time and time again, we come to that. And But this is a good time to talk about this. When you read the epistles, I think especially, one of the key issues that keeps coming up is false teaching. And this is false teaching. Mm-hmm. And so how do you deal with it? You have to flee from it. You have to. You can flee from it by kicking the false teacher out, to be sure. But sometimes that's not going to be possible and so you need to go to a place and yeah you might love the coffee bar you might like you might love your small group and i get that that's painful but this guy is just shoving garbage into your ears and your slow cap is showing that you're like i'm not so sure about this you need to to flee that and instead of giving him the benefit of the doubt and saying eh you know you take the good you take the bad right uh, you know, it's just like eating a piece of chicken. You know, you 
you you eat the meat and you leave the bone and so this is bone and we're not going to eat that but we'll be back next week so that we can eat some chicken and i think there are places where you can't you need to be patient with your pastor and he's still a man is still a sinner um but you don't need to be super patient with him when it comes to preaching god's word he is a trained theologian supposedly well this guy's not okay but going to your point you can really see why the training is necessary right and if i say something that somebody questions in my sermon like come and talk to me and let's wrestle with scripture together and i've had that happen a few times um i try to be very diligent in what i preach um, and try to leave Christ there at the at the center of it all. Um, but sometimes people are like, you, you know, you said something that made me a little uncomfortable. Let's talk about that. And I said, well, great, let's do that. I would hate to cast aspersions on this on this man. I don't know how he would take criticism, but he seems pretty locked into to what he's saying. Like you said, he really believes this stuff, and so it's hard it's hard for me to imagine him being convinced. Well, this isn't actually you misuse scripture here, here, and here. And him just kind of internalizing that and saying, you're right, and I need to repent. Now, I think that's fitting and good to call a person to repentance and say, hey, you need to turn around from this and, and get back on with what God is actually saying. But for the congregation, the admonition that you're making to anyone in this guy's congregation or another congregation where you know the same drivel is being spewed out, you leave. You should, and that's what Scripture says you're supposed to do. Right. Which which is a huge challenge because people in that church are oftentimes they're less for the 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 truth and more for the relationships. The, the relationships. It feels good. I'm right. comfortable in this place. Right. People love me, and right. and I get it. I right. I totally do. And there, there's no doubt that in the evangelical church, the glue that holds the place together is the relationships that one has. Doctrine takes a back seat. I mean, it's there, but not like it is in the Lutheran Church, where you really do have people, they might only associate with each other on Sundays. But in this moment, when we come together at church, we believe the same thing, and it's that which binds us together. If you can have both, I mean, this this really is heaven on earth, where you have the confessional agreement and unity, and then you have relational unity. Man, this is, you know, this is a, a real sweet spot to be able to have this. My point is the evangelical, they don't have that confessional unity. Right. And this is why you can have a non-denominational church and your doctrinal statement is very vague. And you can have people who grew up Methodist, people who grew up Presbyterian, people who grew up Catholic, and we're all kind of in the stew. I think it is interesting. You want both. It's, it's not even just that's uh, a desirable end goal that's very hard to achieve. Scripture says we want to have unity in doctrine and unity in life. Um, but you have to recognize that there is an ordering of that. And you cannot have true relationship with each other until we are organized and united in the truth of God's word, right? And we use terms like doctrine and, and dogma and things, and those seem like bad words to us. But if we ground it in, this is the truth of God's word. And instead of us just coming together and ignoring our differences, we're actually letting that word shape us. 
then we we grow into people that that love each other and we realize that we're facing challenges together and we're not just ignoring our differences we're truly becoming that body of christ but the body is pretty useless if you don't have the head right <laughs> and the the head is christ and 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 the truth that he brings to bear on us uh, in in scripture he is the word made flesh and that word speaks and informs and gives life to the body and if you just cut off the head and you're like oh we'll just have unity without the head i mean you just have a corpse yeah so you could say here that again when it comes to the difference difference between relationships and uh confessional subscription i guess is uh something else another way we would put it you know, the evangelical has got the uh, the cart really before the horse, and I think that's your point: is that the the uh, the confessional unity and subscription that's that's the horse, that's the head, that's Christ, and then the relationships they then form out of that. We're not. I'm not. We're not just saying this because we have our own predisposition. There is history that that feeds into this. It is true. You can kind of bind unlike-minded people together for a short term, uh, but you cannot do it long term. Uh, and there have been attempts after attempts after attempts in church history, especially since the Reformation, where we were so divided, to bring us back together and to, to saw off those rough edges that were distinctions between us, right? And, and try to get to that real core belief. And every time we've tried it, it has failed. I mean, and you know it's failed because... There are still a hundred different denominations out there. It's not that's like yeah. it's not like no it's not like we've been able to figure out a way right. to come together. And that's also part of the reason why when you look at a lot of these churches like this, they're very young churches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because right? you can kind of hold that core together through a pastor's tenure, maybe two pastors' tenures. Right. But it's not going to be something that lasts for generations because there's not there's the glue is not there it's interesting so and this is why you would say uh melanchthon gets such a a bad rap at times in even lutheran circles because uh, using what you were just saying i mean he was one who was trying to get these uh bring these factions together and so if he could soften the edges so to speak say on something like uh you know uh, the sacrament of the altar then then we can get a greater a greater sense of unity. Yes. Now I I am I have a soft spot in my heart for Melanchthon because I think he does get kind of a, a bad rap. He was at his best when he was softening Luther and, and Luther was making him more stalwart. He and, and, and that's a picture too, right? I it certainly isn't to say that we shouldn't desire to seek unity. Scripture calls us to do that too. We just have to do it according to the truth of God. And the problem that Melanchthon and other folks have run into is that when you're seeking unity, you can be sorely tempted to at least bend a little bit, if not flat out break that truth to create the illusion of peace. And that's, and, and, and that's finally what we're saying. There's an illusion of peace over a congregation that doesn't have this, this agreement uh, on scripture. There's a huge difference between presenting the truth and saying, this is where we need to be and we'll be patient as we work towards it and saying, your truth is your truth, your truth is your truth. And we're never going to, 
work on any doctrinal unity. Right. When I was uh, first introduced to the Book of Concord, I mean, I, I've said this so many times on the podcast, you know, this was like, we believe this right here, whatever, you know, whatever article that, uh, that uh, I may have been reading. But as soon as I got into it, I just thought, yes, here it is. These, these guys have said this is, this is the true Christian faith. Boom, boom, boom. And there wasn't any, you believe what you want to believe. And, you know, we're still, uh, we're still in this uh, Christian bubble. Uh, no, no. This is the difference between orthodoxy and heterodoxy, and it was absolutely a delight and such a great refreshment to read. Yeah, and we get so much criticism for being very stalwart about this stuff because it doesn't fit with the spirit of our age. We're very much a tolerant society in which, which I mean, tolerance is good in certain contexts, but again, I'm just pointing back to what Scripture says. We are meant to be intolerant of, of falsehood and falsehood is that which preaches against what god himself has clearly taught and that is the gift of the confessions we don't hold the confessions over and against scripture we see them as a clear enunciation and proclamation of what scripture says in a more condensed form and that was critical for the debates of that age and they're still critical for us today because they, they can be useful for gathering your thoughts uh, and, and you yourself recognize that, right? You were able to read that and say, oh, yeah, that is what Scripture says. Oh, yeah, that is what Scripture... And believe me, you read the confession. It's not like it isn't loaded to bear with Scripture. In fact, I remember... Uh, I'm always, I've always been interested by the fact that there are so many engineers in the Lutheran Church, Missouri. I've noticed that as well. And I was having to be um, taking a, a trip with a bunch of various Lutherans from different places in there. And I was talking to the person sitting next to me and I said, well, what do you do for a living? And he said, I'm an engineer. And I said, of course you are. Of course you are. I've always <laughs> been fascinated by that. There's so many engineers in the Lutheran church and, and engineers who become pastors and things like that. And, he, and I said, I don't, I've never quite figured out what the appeal is. And he says, I know what it is. He says, the confessions appeal to engineers because they're thorough. They don't cut corners by simply addressing the parts of scripture that appeal to what they are trying to argue for. They bring to bear all scripture and they say, and out of this, here is the truth. He says, that's what engineers love. You got to think of it from every angle. You're not just trying to create something that you want it to be. You're trying to create something that actually is true, that works. So it's not theory. It's, it's very practical. And he says, and that's why I love the confessions. I said, that's fascinating. Oh, yeah. In my vicarage church, which was in um, Delaware, DuPont is huge global corporation that is headquartered there in uh, Newark, Delaware. And, of course, we have a lot of engineers. And that was one of the, the observations I made as well. And I just remember what the guy said to me. He said, everything fits. And engineers love when everything fits. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So if you're an engineer listening to this, yeah, right. check out those Lutheran confessions. You'll love them. And you'll be like, oh, here it is. All right, let's get back to Lip Nikki here. The weight of our words. Hey, just two quick points as I get ready to close. One is align your thoughts and your conversations around what God can do in the future and not on your current circumstances. So in your day-to-day -day life, those 
passing moments. Break a habit of that negativity. Break a habit of limiting what God can do. Stop complaining. Stop speaking negatively. Stop criticizing. Stop reinforcing the problems and start praising instead of complaining. Start speaking with faith. Start establishing your future with your words. Amen? Daily? Okay, he said he only had one point, and now he's got two more, but again, he's just saying the same thing over and over. Pastor Oakray, I think I slept on my neck wrong last night or something. I've got a terrible crick in my neck, but I can't say anything about it. I guess i got to say I'm strong and I'm healthy, and my neck is fine, even though it's making my left eye close. What do you, what do you got to say to this? Well, a couple things. First off... He says, I don't want you to think about your current situation. I want to think about the positive one in the future. What if your current situation is really great? Well, true. I've got a good job. I've got money in the bank. Is church only for people who are struggling? I don't, you know, he's basically saying, God, God's already taken care of you. You don't, even need, you don't even need to be here by that logic. That's a pretty slight thing. But more importantly, you know, he said, I don't want you to complain anymore. And that really struck me because we have a whole category in scripture in the Psalms, we have complaint Psalms. Mm-hmm. He's really just cutting God's own word at its knees. God gives us permission, especially in those Psalms, to complain to him. I think sometimes feel like, oh, I can't complain to God. I have to pretend like everything's great and happy. And the complaint Psalms kind of punch through that and they say, it's okay to say to God, I don't like the situation I'm in. Mm-hmm. It is okay to say to him, I am weeping and flooding my, my bed with tears. I am despairing over, over the, the, my plight. Now and, those, and why won't you answer me? Right. I mean, those are the cries. Now, those psalms always end affirming God's goodness. It's, it doesn't just leave you complaining. You, uh, that person always at some point, ha- about halfway through the psalm says, but you are God. And you do hear me, and you do come to rescue me. And that's why the complaint psalms are so good. But it's very different than this. It says, out of your complaint, you can recognize God's mercy and provision and love. And there's no room for any of that. He's like, you you can't complain. If you complain, you're failing. And Scripture teaches us something, the, the complete opposite of that. Number two, declare God's promises. Intentionally declare God's promises over your life, your church, your family. All right, so I'm going to read a piece that we can all read together. Um, I declare incredible blessings over Life Church, its ministry, staff, and all who call Life Church home. I declare we will see an explosion of God's goodness, a sudden widespread increase of grace. We will experience the surpassing greatness of God's favor. It will elevate us higher than we've ever dreamed. I speak spiritual growth, passion, and momentum over our church for 2020. Come on, church, say that with a clap. I believe it, I believe it. All right, so Pastor Oakery, just to let you know what I did here, he's written out these declarations, and he actually read through it by himself first, and then he encouraged the congregation to read through it with him, and that's the part that we listen to together. So he really is turning this sermon. He's not leaving it with the people to go do something about it. He's actively making them declare over not just the church, but I think there will be some more categories here, of these pie-in-the-sky statements. This is going to be the year that our church, what, gets elevated higher than it's ever been? Whatever that means. And it's vague enough that he can point back to it and say, like, yep, we're there. No specifics. 
it dawned on me this is a probably a, a, a congregation that would turn its nose up a bit at um, at a written collect <laughs> right but right. but as long as it's up on the screen and the oh, pastor yeah. invented yeah. it in his own mind yeah. and then put it up there let's all let's all pray together now oh yeah and it's just it's interesting to me there's nothing excordy about that in fact he's not trusting the people's hearts he's saying I, I got to give you the words to prime the pump and I just thought that was intriguing that at the end of the day, he was like, I don't actually trust you to speak positivity in your own life without my help. The second declaration for our church. Let me read it to you. I declare Life Church will help people find life in Jesus. God's vision for us to grow and become a church of 1,000 is right in front of us. I declare our password, Life 1000. Just a quick explanation. Um, last week, in my ramblings, I revealed to you our church password to some stuff. Um, it's all changed now, so, but, but I just thought it was... So, um, our, our, so just in a funny way, our password for this year is Life 1000 because we believe God has spoken that to us. Um, go watch last week's message. You can learn more about it. But I declare our password Life 1000. This is our year of breakthrough in numbers of salvation, people finding freedom, attendance, and finances. I declare that we will have every resource we need to build our new building. I declare God is going to do more than we can ask or think in 2020. Amen? All right. Let's say so together. Let's say so together. One, two, three. I declare. All right, we don't need to listen to the congregation saying this, but he did get a little bit more specific here with yeah. this whole, you know, our goal is a thousand, and we're declaring that it's a thousand, so that when we reach this goal of a thousand, I, I want to say they're in this the high six, low sevens, uh, people who who attend this church. So when he says, you know, a thousand is like right around the corner, it can be. And so what are they going to tie this back to? The fact that they declared it. Right. When they reach it, they declared it. And I'll I'll bet you dollars to donuts that this pastor is going to pull back up this declaration on the day in which they have a thousand people or, you know, the Sunday afterwards and say, folks, our Easter service, you know, which generally is going to bring out more peeps, our Easter service yesterday or last Sunday had a thousand plus people notice what we declared ergo this stuff is true yeah it's intriguing to me because we just we count people in a completely different way we do keep track of who comes to church on any given sunday but we also have membership and that to me is the more significant those are the people who said i want you to be my pastor i want to be under your your spiritual care and as excited as I am to see a fuller church on Easter, I'm more excited to see that person who's coming week after week after week faithfully. Uh, because to me, that's that's what scripture wants. It doesn't just want you to pop up on Easter and be like, hey, all right, thanks for boosting our attendance numbers. That'll look good on the yearly report when we work that into the average. To me, that's just frivolous. And yet he's staking an awful lot on that. But you, you see what it's coming back to for him, right? It's, we, it's numbers in the building and it's, money to build the building project and those things are are good they are adequate gauges they aren't the only gauge right and even more significantly it's not really what scripture points us to as what we should be praying for what we should be praying for is that faith increase in every heart and this is what always stuns me is that there seems to be almost no concern for continued faith development in these people. It's just, hey, we're all waiting around in the kiddie pool over here. And a person who grows and engages their faith so that their their faith can survive the trials and travails of life. But these people don't have trials. I mean, they will. 
I don't think so. Everybody has trials. (laughs) And that's the thing. I mean, it's just like it's it's geared towards uh, a younger crowd that hasn't quite hit those things that just take the wind out of your sails. Like I say, your spouse dying, cancer, um, all of those things. And I mean, and you said it yourself, right? When you were at your church, when you went to the hospital, were you going to go visit the sick and dying? No, I only went to one floor. Yeah. And it was where everybody was having babies. Right. And that's, I mean, and that's great, but you're not engaging with people in their suffering. And to the point where I think you can get to the place where you're like, this is all suffering is, is mild inconveniences. It's, it's an increase in, in the electric bill. It's, hey, my car's in the shop. It's not, it's not these enduring things that really teach us that this world is not good enough mm. and that we have, to, we have to set our eyes finally on the place that Christ has go to, gone to prepare for us. Yeah, I think I did in 13 years, three funerals. That's amazing. I mean, th- that says a lot about the demographics of, of the church you were at. I've done 13 funerals every year that I've been here. Sure. And again, that says something about how these congregations generally don't survive generationally. Some do, some can, but a lot of them, they, they kind of pop up and then die out somehow, some way. Amen. So good. Woo! See, we put our faith with what God wants. God is speaking, and we just want to say what he's saying. I want to personalize it for you. Three places uh, for you just to uh, declare over your life. And so I'll read these to you, and um, then you can, you can clean these in your life. You can speak them over your life. Uh, so the first one here is about your health. And so let me read this to you. Uh, some of you may be here and you've been working through different health issues in your life. And so this is a great declaration, but I'll read it. I declare I will walk in ever-increasing health. My best days of health are in front of me. I'm making good decisions in my eating, exercise, and sleeping. I declare that every sickness, disease, cancer, ache, and pain are broken off of my life. I receive divine healing today. Amen? Amen? Do you want to say that one too? You're like, hey, let's say it. Let's believe it. Let's do it. Come on. One, two, three. I declare. All right. So he clearly has set the hook now and he has got them all drinking the kool-aid doesn't he well he at least has a decent shtick right i'm going to talk about it and now we're going to do it and we're going to do it again and again and again and this is how you pad out 20 minutes of a sermon but again what did how did he describe health he described divine healing well he did but he said i'm going to eat better yeah i'm going to exercise i'm going to i'm going to sleep better yeah that, that is literally his definition of being healthier. I, I just can't even quantify how far off that is from people in my congregation are experiencing. Sure, yeah, we could all stand to do those things. But when, you, you know, when you're dealing with Alzheimer's or you know, you're, you've got chronic heart failure, that's not even in his worldview. That's not what health is to him. And it's just insane to me. And, and all of this and all of this stuff turns to garbage. What a shallow picture of what this world is and what it does to us. This broken world, this world broken by sin, chews us up and spits us out. Doesn't mean there's not good in this world. There is. There are blessings in this world. But finally, this world is a world of death. And there's no recognition of that. In what this man is saying. The next one over marriage and family. Let me read it. I declare my marriage is growing stronger and our commitment to love and care for one another is increasing. We will serve the Lord together, laugh together, support one another, dream together, and stay connected romantically. I declare our best days are ahead of us. 
Amen? You with me on that, babe? <laughs> Love it. Let's, let's, let's read this out, especially if you're married. Read it louder, all right? I mean, what else do you say? Well, of course we all want better marriages, but simply proclaiming it isn't Is going that, That's to... not going to do it? I, well, I think it, I think it can help to, to put you in like, okay, I'm going to fight for my marriage. And sometimes you do need that talk. But what's going to make your marriage stronger isn't proclaiming that it'll be better. It's actually working on making it better. But that's so much harder than just declaring. <laughs> I know it. It's, it's taking time to be there with your with your with your spouse and, and talk to her. Well, if you have to, Ugh. if she's into that, you know. And so much of this is that he's talking about talking, proclaiming it instead of just doing it. Uh, and and again, it's it's an inverse. God's the one who who speaks things to be. We're the ones that are called to do uh, in our lives. Right? Love love our spouses. Raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But that is hard work. And again, it's work that, that you cannot do without the sustaining strength and, for, and, and mercy from the cross. Our, my marriage to my wife, Tamara, is bound together by the forgiveness and mercy of the cross. Because believe me, I've got, there's a lot of stuff I do that needs to be forgiven. And our marriage works because Tamara does forgive me. And I forgive her too for the two things she's ever done wrong in our marriage. So let's circle back to something that was mentioned before. And it was about this, this parable of the sower and the seed. Again, this inverse. You're taking your words, i.e. the seed, and you're throwing it back onto yourself so that there will be a harvest of sorts. This is not what the Scripture teaches us at all. It's God's Word that has this power. And even though he's saying all we're doing is saying God's words back to ourselves, this is witchcraft. But it really is. Now we're casting spells, as it were, over our church, over our life, over our marriage, thinking that this hocus pocus is going to come about. I think that's a really strong point. And I think it actually highlights a, a portion of the meaning of that second commandment that Lutheran brings to light that we sometimes just kind of like, I don't even know what that means, but we should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, use witchcraft in the old one, or use satanic arts, lie or deceive by his name. You're, you're pointing out that that use satanic arts or that, that use witchcraft. How does, that, how does that play out in anybody's life practically? And this is it. This is putting God's, God's name and connecting it to this kind of mystical, magical thinking. Name it, claim it, this prosperity gospel stuff is witchcraft. It is saying God's word is a ma God's name is a magic totem that you can call upon to make your life better. And and what makes it satanic and what makes it witchcraft is that just like you said, instead of casting the seed out to others, as God's word actually says to do, you say, I'm doing it for myself. And there's nothing more satanic than that, right? That's the, that's the inward curved state. That is embracing your own sinfulness. The only person I care about is me. The only person's health I care about is mine. The only relationships I care about are mine. It's so selfish and he's just putting it out there and everybody's just eating it up. And if one thing God's word does, it says, don't be selfish. You Don't be obsessed with yourself. That is the, the very core of the sin of Adam and Eve right? You will be like God. 
And that's exactly what he's saying. And so this is Satanic Arts. Hey, one last one. Breakthroughs and answered prayers, miracles. Let me read this to you. I declare nothing is impossible for God. He is the God of breakthrough and a miracle worker. He is the God Almighty who hears and answers all of my prayers. I declare every supernatural breakthrough, answered prayer, and miracles are on its way in 2020. Let's read it together. Ready? What you think about that? It makes me think about Zeus. The Jewish system, the Jewish worship, the Old Testament worship, had sacrifice. And so did Baal. So does Zeus. And when you look at the surface like that, you can say, well, it's all the same thing. You, you, you're sacrificing and you're just sacrificing in different places. But you sacrifice to Zeus to make Zeus notice you and to manipulate Zeus into giving you good stuff. I don't want thunder and lightning. I want clear skies. You sacrifice to Baal because you want it to rain. You sacrifice to Poseidon because you don't want your boat to get sunk. God in the Old Testament says, I want you to sacrifice, but you don't sacrifice to make me notice you. You don't sacrifice uh, to, to manipulate me into giving you good things because I'm giving you good things you don't even deserve. I'm giving you more than what you could ever sacrifice to get. You sacrifice to me so you don't forget who I am. And so you don't forget who you are. And that you don't forget the promises that there's a sacrifice coming. Uh, that's not a pigeon or sheep. And it's not a firstborn son that you give birth to. It's mine. It's my firstborn son. When you make that recognition, it changes everything. And what he's saying is, the God we worship is Zeus. He's a God that you have to placate and manipulate into giving you blessing. God's blessing us. He's, he's blessed us more. He's, he's blessed us with blessings we don't even recognize as blessings. Sure. And this guy's trying to cast us back into the old paganism. He, he's, he's trying to turn God into just some arrogant, ignorant thing that the best you can hope to do is, is draw his attention long enough to bless you. What a shame. Amen. Amen. I have this printed up for you if you want a copy of that. Greg, help me out. Where are those copies? On that table right there. So if you want a copy of those declarations, you can put them on your refrigerator. You can declare God's promises for our church and God's promises for your life. That'd be great. Amen, church? Everybody say so. Amen. Hey, if you're here today and you've never said yes to Jesus Christ as your Savior. Well, you know what's getting ready to happen when you hear the mood music kick in, Pastor Oakry. This is now the gospel, not for the Christians, but for them lost folks. It is so fascinating to me that a person who, who has not found Jesus yet, in the, using his own words, sitting there, has to be thinking, well, I don't need Jesus <laughs> because you're not giving it to these folks who, who, who have found him. And, and so, I mean, the whole logic is uh, once you found Jesus, you can just put him in your junk drawer. And one day you're going to be cleaning around the house. You'll be like, oh, there's Jesus. What's he doing? Do I even really need him? I've been so busy proclaiming blessings on my life. Eh, maybe I can throw him out. And, and, and I don't mean that glibly. I mean, this is, this is actually how faith is lost is when you make Jesus and his forgiveness simply the entry point into the Christian life, and then once you're a Christian, Jesus is gone, and 
don't go back and listen to this sermon again because it's awful, but recognize that Christ has not been a part of this sermon in any real substantive way. His name has been bandied about a few times, but it's mostly been about God blessing your life apart from forgiveness, apart from his mercy and grace revealed in the cross. What's to keep you from waking up one day and saying, my life is pretty good. I have the blessings I need. My pastor has never said to me that I need Jesus from this point on. So why can't I just take Jesus out of my junk drawer and put him in the trash can? And I guarantee you, faith is lost this way. Absolutely. And that is why this is so wrong. And this is kind of a uh, an evangelical, this is the evangelical two-step, right? We, we're going we're gonna to talk grace, mercy, and forgiveness to you because we know it's there in Scripture. But the second that you say, I believe it, we're just going to take it all away from you. And then maybe bring it up again when you die. That seems to be the model. And I've seen it. Jesus, forgiveness, and grace. Now come to church and get your, your self-help guidance every week. And when you die, I'm going to mention Jesus on the cross for you one last time. What a paltry Christ. What a paltry cross. It, it, it's, it's not enough in anything. That This is why we are encouraging you to hear these things, but also to reject them completely. Because this has no part of Christ. Well, my question is, for the guy who has not accepted Jesus, he's just gotten through declaring out loud with the church, over his life, his marriage. I mean, did it invalidate his declaration? This guy's not going to say that it did. It doesn't matter whether you have faith or not. You just need to tap into that God power. At some point. And this is why this is really just a, a Christian, this is just a Christian veneer put on the secret. Put on uh, name it, claim it stuff. And this stuff has been around before the sure. secret. It's, sure. it's been around forever. The power of positive thinking. That's all this is. Norman Vincent Peale. Yeah. Who actually is our president's pastor. What I'm, do you think I'm about not, that? I, I'm not touching that okay. with a 10-foot pole. Okay. We started this whole thing out today that the redeemed of the Lord say so. The redeemed. That means that those who have accepted the grace of Jesus Christ in our life. Those who have recognized their need for a Savior. Those who have said, I cannot, I cannot live perfectly. I need help from God. There's only one way to find peace with the Father above, and that's by believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. In order for you to be able to say so, you have to say yes to Jesus today. And so I want to just give you an opportunity to say, I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And so I'm going to invite you to just bow your heads. And Father, in this moment, this ministry moment where we, we reflect on our own life and we come to a point where we say, God, I need a Savior. And Lord, if there are people in this house today that have never said yes to Jesus, would you let this be the moment that they say yes to Jesus? It will be the greatest decision they've ever made. It was the best decision I've ever made. So let's all say this prayer. And if you've never said yes to Jesus, this is your prayer of yes. Let's all say this together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. He died for my sins. 
rose from the grave to prove He was God. Today is my yes. I believe in Jesus as my Savior. In Jesus' name, and all the redeemed said, Amen. And so, Amen. Church, I love you. God bless. Take it away, Eli. I love it. Eli's his son, who I don't know, he's in charge of you know small groups or something. So Eli comes up and puts a little spin on what Papa just said. And oh, if I'm not mistaken, his wife gets up afterwards and she even adds a little bit. So it's the gift that keeps on giving, kind of like diarrhea. So closing thoughts, Pastor Oakery. He preached against himself there at the very end. How so? He said, I can't do any of this without Jesus Christ. And he just spent the last, who knows how long. Yeah, 30 some odd minutes. Saying, there, there is no Christ in that. Mm-hmm. And, and so, I mean, I guess the fairest reading is that he's assuming that Christ was there for everybody. But then, he, it's so weird, right? You can't be a part of what I just said until you accept Jesus but he made them a part of what he just said and it's it's such a it's such a curious thing and and there's like these two warring thoughts going on in his head god's power is about you proclaiming blessings on yourself but then now boom hard cut actually you need jesus i mean i'm glad it's there but these things are working against each other they're not complementing each other they're not they're not flowing consistently out of God's word. And, and of course, we would, you know, we would critique the fact that, you know, he's saying you're making a choice, right? Because you can't choose to believe anything. I mean, just challenge yourself to believe something you don't believe to be true. You, you can't do it. You can pretend to do it, but you can't actually do it. You need God to come in his word and actually change your heart so that you say, you don't say, as an act of will, I believe you simply realize, oh, I do believe this. It's a little bit less stunning, right? And maybe a little bit less powerful from a human perspective. It flummoxes me that he can kind of just cut. And the music starts, he's like, okay, now now it's Jesus time. Which, Ministry moment. Which is, yeah, which is just amazing that he thinks Jesus is just for unbelievers, but not for believers. And then it's interesting, too, that... He made this faith, um, this faith prayer, a completely personal thing. He said, "Pray it or don't, right?" But I'm, there's not going to be any challenge. There's not, there's not. At least, at least a good Baptist church will get after you to get baptized, and we've heard a few sermons like that because you need to make that confession public. In fact, a confession isn't a confession until it's a, until it's public. That's part of what confession is. Is proclaiming something so that others can hear it and i i'm curious what their what their belief practices or is it just like i'm assuming that you've come here week after week and that you are a believer but i have no idea right i mean he, he if, if this is all they do for belief he has no idea who is a believer in his congregation and who's just a visitor and just been visiting for a long time have you ever had anybody like that in your church that just comes and comes and comes but they they won't actually become a member. Oh sure, yeah. They like they like they love visiting. I guess <laughs> it's the strangest thing to me. I was like, I want you to be. I want to be your pastor. I tell them that I want to be your pastor. I'm like, I'm good. Right. 
Like so weird. Yeah, and you know, it's a really just mind-blowing thought when you look in the book of Revelation and it talks about, you know, the Lord opening up a, a book and how your church and our church, we have a book. And in the book are the people who have been born in this church, the people who have been baptized in this church, the people who have been confirmed, married, died. I mean, they're all recorded yeah. in the book. And communed. Uh, yeah, the number of times that they've communed. Yeah, absolutely. And so then you read in Revelation about the book. That is absolutely beautiful. And in what we're listening to, it's completely devoid here. Right. And it's completely subjective is the, the problem. Maybe a person did pray that because, you know, everybody around them is praying it. And maybe they were like, okay, I really want this to be true. Like, that's what's going through their head. Right. But then they leave and they get back up to the life that they've been living. And that life is going to have sin in it. I mean, it's necessarily going to. And all this thing, all this can do is we like, well, I guess I believed it for that moment, but now I don't. I'll go back to church and I'll get that. And you're just like like a drunken driver. You're just weaving in and out of faith. And and there's nothing that, that is being given here to ground your faith. And what we're talking about in that book are the things that objectively ground your faith. Yes, you go out and you sin, but were you baptized? Yes. And so God took hold of you. You didn't take hold of God. God's taken hold of you and he's holding on to you even, even as you're out there trying to squirm free of his grasp, as it were. Uh, and, and you've come and you've heard God's word uh, and you've been confirmed in that baptismal faith that was given to you. And you've, you've regularly received the Lord's Supper. And I love this in funerals. You know, I love a Christian obituary that talks about their, their baptism and their confirmation. I love at a funeral being able to say, I ministered to this person a week or two before they died, I came to them, I gave them the Lord's Supper, and I said, may this body and blood strengthen and preserve you until life everlasting. And now they know that life everlasting. And it makes those grounded connections so that it's not just, it's not just all trapped in our brain and our fleeting thoughts of God. I mean, think about how often you think about your faith and how often you think about God in an average day, right? It's not the first thing going through my mind at any given moment. The wonder of our faith grounded in scripture is that as much as I should have God as the first thought in my mind, what grounds me and what makes me secure in my faith is the fact that even when I don't, God, God has me. I'm a baptized child of God. And that identity pulls me through life completely. And there's none of that here. And, and maybe they do have, you know, a quarterly, hey, you got to get baptized. Oh, yeah. There's an emphasis. Yeah. Um, I, 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 don't, and I don't know how strong that is in a, in a Pentecostal-leaning church. I mean, I think that's interesting. I know in like a Baptist-leaning evangelical church, that would certainly be. Like, sure. Hey, it's, it's time for the hard sell, guys. Right. The, the quarterly, the half year. If you haven't been baptized yet, you better do it because right. you're being a bum if you're not. Exactly. Right? But, but in the Pentecostal church... I think Pastor Bruss and I have critiqued uh, this same guy uh, making this appeal. But in the Pentecostal, we're going to do a water baptism emphasis. But then we've got to do a spirit 
baptism emphasis. Right. So that you can speak in tongues. So it's not just deciding for Jesus, but it's deciding for Jesus, committing to baptism, and then pushing on to spirit baptism. Yeah. And we talk about the Pentecostal system is a really clear two-tier Christianity system. Oh, right. JV and varsity. Yeah. You, yeah. you believe, yeah. but you don't believe, yeah. believe until you get the tongues. That's and, right. And we've just, what a shameful way to, to, to preach and, and, and institute disunity into God's unified church. Be clear. What we believe is a, an infant who is baptized is just as much a Christian as a person with a PhD in theology, right? It's as not, much as St. Paul himself. Amen. Yes. And that's so critical. And, and it's actually one of the reasons why we... Uh, I remember reading this in Peeper and it struck me. That's the reason why we use the same baptismal formula for infants and adults. Even though sometimes uh, some of the things don't, are, don't easily align. Speaking a confession of faith for an infant... That can be like, that's a little strange, but we're trying to say like this baptism is the same baptism that an adult would receive because they're getting the same thing. They're becoming just as Christian, right? They're, an infant baptized is not a junior varsity Christian. They're a fully loved child of God, just as much as St. Paul. Well, and this goes back to uh, the parable that most people know regarding the workers in the vineyard where they all get the exact same reward for the amount of work that they put in. You know, the child gets the same forgiveness of sins, the same salvation, the same heaven, the same Holy Spirit that the person who has their name in the book and all of the major things in their life that have been recorded. It's it's the same forgiveness of sins. It's the same salvation. It's the same... Uh, eternal life. Yeah. And I want to make it clear how precious that is, uh, going back to my, my niece Elizabeth, who died. There wasn't a lot to say about her life, but we got to say that she was baptized. And that's... And that that's says all it you, all. That's all you need to say. Yeah. And that that's what made that funeral a joy. And, it, and that's what made it so that we could sing. Sing life in the face of death. And, and not declare ridiculous uh, platitudes in the face of death. Right. And it's, it's for moments like that, this guy's got nothing. I don't, I don't even know what he would do for a member whose child died you know, in the first few months of life. Could he even do a funeral? Does he even do funerals? I don't know. <laughs> ah, that's, that's, for the fu- that's the funeral home's job, baby. I don't know. Um. But uh, I think about that and, and how much more grounded we, we are. Well, Pastor Oakry, there's the music. So glad that you could come in and critique a bad sermon with me. I hope it's been a, uh, a fruitful exercise in some respects. It always makes me glad to be a Lutheran when we do this. Amen to that. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org. It says that uh, we should fear and love God so that we do not uh, use God's name, what, for to lie, deceive. Curse, swear. Right. Use. So let, me, let me start over. <laughs>